Good morning. Oh, y'all, today is a lot. Um, I've not had uh, what I've had preparing for this sermon in a while that I've had for this one. So heavy stuff and good stuff. And um, I might crack a couple of bad jokes to lighten it up. So if you'll just, you know, laugh, that'd be great. Um, But today we are going to be talking about um, Mark chapter 5. Thank you, Justin. Verses um, 1 through 20. And a lot of you are probably familiar with this story. Uh, It's a story of the man who was possessed by a lot, a lot of demons. Um, And I didn't think I was going to sit, but I need to sit, so we're sitting. Um, So anyway, that's where we're going today. Um, So Jesus, just be with me here and be with us as we get into this. So uh, before we get into the bulk of today's story, we need to talk first about the setting. It's going to set us up really well here. So where are we in the world at the time of Jesus, and why does it matter? So chapter 5 begins with, they came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. And last week, Elena spoke um, on a parable teaching from chapter 4, and in that chapter, Mark tells us that Jesus was teaching by the sea. In fact, he was teaching on the boat. But some translations will say, by the lake. And the sea being mentioned is actually the Sea of Galilee, which I have a map. Ben, do you got that? Um, I hope this is accurate. I looked around for maps that were easy to read. So... Um, So interestingly enough, to me, it looks more like a lake, and I looked it up, and it's technically a lake. So that translation is correct. Um, Doesn't doesn't really matter much. Um, Geoscience was probably a very newish, maybe non-existent science at the time. So they called it a sea. It's fine. So at the end of the fourth chapter, so we we have Jesus teaching these parables, and at the end, from the boat, it says um, that they he he and his followers and other people that came with him, there are multiple boats, go, and they're going to go across this sea, and now we hear they're coming towards what, where our story takes place today, which is vaguely called the country of the Gerasenes. And there are some geographical anomalies and arguments about exactly where Jesus is landing in this story, um, but the exact location is less important than what the general location tells us. So Jesus is coming from the region of Galilee, over here, and sailing across that sea to the region of the Decapolis. Why is that important? Well, because the region of the Decapolis, unlike Galilee, was not Jewish, but rather was part of the Hellenistic world. It was populated mostly by Gentiles, uh, non-Jewish people, basically, and this fact was highlighted, is, is highlighted in several details of the story, and it's significant to the events that occur. So we're going to note that. And then before we get to these, the events, once again, the bulk of today's scripture setting us up, we, uh, I think we also need to talk about what happens in the scene um, just before today's story. So while Jesus and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, at some point in the journey, a major storm hits. And... Um, 
everyone else is on board and they are freaking out because the ship is breaking and water's coming on the boat and Jesus is below deck sound asleep. And y'all, I didn't sleep well last night, so right now I'm like, really, Jesus? Really? I wish. Um, But Jesus is sound asleep and they're freaking out. And so they go down to wake him up and this is what happens. We'll go ahead and read those verses together. They woke him and he said and said to him, "Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?" And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, "Peace, be still." And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, "Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith?" And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, "Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him?" So that's the crazy thing that happens right before we get to today's story. Um, And it kind of begins like one of four major miracle stories, like this part of Mark's gospel. And so today we're going to talk about the second one, which is um, this demon-possessed man. So hold that in your mind, what's just happened, and we will finally jump into today's scripture. Um, Since it's longer, about 20 verses, and just the way that I've decided to go about this. I'm breaking it down into three different sections. So we're going to start reading verse 2, and then we're going to pause after verse 8. So let's get going here. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Okay, so we're going to pause here before we get into the actual exorcism part of the story and talk a little bit about this man, or at least um, what we know about him from the details given in Scripture. So, first, he said to have an unclean spirit which the terms unclean spirit and demons are kind of used interchangeably in scripture, seems to mean the same thing. Um, Some of your translations might even say impure spirit. So basically this man is possessed um, by demons. We are told that he's living out in the tombs, out among the dead, because his condition caused him to have supernatural strength. He would break any shackles they put on him, and they were clearly afraid of what this demon-possessed man might do. So he's sent to live away from society, away from the living, out among the dead. And the people think that there's nothing else they can do for him, um, and they're, they're just scared. They're afraid of what someone who could break chains and shackles might do to people. Though I wonder if... It would have been, uh, that would have been the point of the shackles at all, since it's not harming other people that's mentioned here, but himself. In verse 8, it says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So these characteristics, uh, crying out and cutting oneself with stones, are practices associated with being possessed in Scripture and in, in the ancient world, or insane at the time. 
And in researching this passage, I found out that it alludes to four of the symptoms of insanity in Jewish, ancient Jewish understanding. And those are running about at night, spending the night in the seminary, of oh, the seminary, wow, that's hard enough as it is, but the cemetery might be scarier, I don't know. Actually, I do know, seminary's hard. <laughs> Tearing one's garments and destroying what one has been given. So the tearing of gar- garments is not specifically mentioned in this verse, these verses I read, but later in the passage, after the man's been freed of demons, the people encounter, encountering him note his being clothed as a marker of change, so we can kind of assume that maybe that was going on. Um, the destruction of what one has been given could be read from destroying the chains and shackles, but could also be his attempting to destroy himself. Now, this definition of insanity is very archaic and culturally specific um, way of diagnosing what we know today is far, far more complicated, right? Um, But I think it's interesting to mention because this passage has often been victim to a modern retelling of exorcisms that I believe to be harmful. In that retelling, people look at this person his behaviors, and and same of other exorcism stories, and the lack of medical understanding that people had at the time it was written, and say that perhaps the man was just suffering from a severe mental illness and not demon possession. So a lot of you may not know, I served as a chaplain at UNC Hospital for a couple of years. Um, and as a chaplain, and we're called into all sorts of stuff, um, occasionally that calling would be to someone experiencing a psychiatric crisis. Um, usually this person was a believer and just wanted someone to pray with them. Very, very rarely would we get a request for an exorcism, and that was never in our scope of practice. But I was called to pray with a person experiencing a crisis who very much felt like demons were attacking them and responsible for what they were experiencing. And I really empathized empathized with that person. Um, It was clear they were suffering greatly and really wanted a reason for it, something to blame. And I can't say for certain if demons were involved in that situation, but we prayed together, and it was powerful, and I really, really hope they ultimately got the help they needed. But I'll be honest with y'all for a minute. Demons freak me out. Um, I want nothing more than to give into the temptation of that modern interpretation of Scripture and dismiss demon possession as a misunderstanding of mental illness. Basically, not a real thing. But to do so, I think, really fails to see the full scope of God's power and grace in these exorcism stories. I also think the scriptures are really clear about what this man is experiencing, and that is a supernatural, supernatural possession by evil spirits. However, making a connection here between how this man suffers while being possessed and how a person with a severe mental illness might also suffer is not without merit. It's certainly a way that many of us might connect with the story. We just have to be careful not to conflate the two things, okay? 
especially since mental illnesses require medical diagnosis and treatment alongside prayer and community. And demon possessions require someone who's not me, please. <laughs> that was my bad joke. You can laugh. All right. Moving on, let's get to the actual exorcism part of this story. So we're going to start in verse 6 here. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. So... It's interesting, this, this story is in um, Mark and Luke, and I think Matthew, um, but only in Mark's version of the story does the man first see Jesus from a ways off, like that, that detail is included. And I'm not sure why Mark chose to include that detail, but I think it does add to the supernatural element of this story, right? These demons sense Jesus coming, and they know he's coming straight for them. Because if you sit and think about it, why else would Jesus be docking his boat out by the tombs, away from the people in the civilization and the towns in the area, toward whom presumably he's coming to teach? So the man runs out, sees Jesus, runs out and meets Jesus and falls down before him. And this is a clear acknowledgement, both from the man and the demons possessing him, that Jesus has the power in this situation. And the man says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So the Greek wording here is actually a little weird. Um, it literally says, what to me to you? So my interpretation of that is, what do you want from me, Jesus? Again, these demons seem to know that Jesus was on that boat to get them. And like is the case in other exorcism stories, they recognize who Jesus is even when many people around Jesus at the time and, and in these stories don't. Specifically, they recognize Jesus' relationship with God. And with that recognition also comes the acknowledgement of Jesus' power and authority. Um, as soon as they see Jesus coming, these demons know they're toast. And this is the fact that really drives the rest of the exorcism story. So the demons begin to beg Jesus not to send them out of the area. Really, they fear being sent into the abyss, total annihilation, which they know Jesus has the power to do. And they know he certainly didn't come here to let them remain in this poor man. So they beg him to send them into this massive herd of pigs over on a nearby hill. The name they give, Legion, is a loan word from Latin. And in the Greek version, it, it can be used to simply mean a large number. 
Um, that face value definition really seems to be what the how the text is using it, but a connection is often made to Roman armies called legions, um, which consist of five to 6,000 men, um, and indeed over 2,000 pigs we read are needed in order to contain the amount of demons that had been found residing in this one man, which is really crazy to think about. So the spirits think they're, they're getting what they want here. The demons think they're winning, in a sense, um, when Jesus obliges them by sending them into these pigs um, that they asked. Um, but then those pigs end up running themselves directly over the cliff into the sea, presumably doing exactly what the demons feared, total annihilation. And remember how in the story just before this, Jesus calms the raging seas? Um, well, it's interestingly enough, a lot, of, a lot of people in looking at, like scholars and people in looking at that story say that it reads a lot like an exorcism itself, except instead of like evil spirits being exorcised, it's the wild spirit of the seas. Then in this story, we see these evil spirits, demons, being driven back into that very sea that Jesus has already exercised. So it's these two stories together kind of blend together very beautifully to demonstrate Jesus's power over the evil for forces of nature at work in the world. Something else going on in the story that is definitely worth mentioning is the issue of cleanliness or ritual purity. So the unclean spirits, the proximity to death and decay at the location of the tombs, and even the pigs themselves are all things considered to make a person unclean in ancient Jewish understanding. Again, this is a Gentile area, though, as the herds of swine being bred nearby further indicate. So those factors may not have meant as much to the people of the area, but to the disciples present and to the readers of Mark's gospel, these things would have been significant. The destruction of the herd of pigs becomes an extension of the healing of the man through the banishment of the unclean spirits into unclean animals and the ultimate destruction of those spirits and animals. So the story of the deliverance of this man ultimately becomes a story of the cleansing of the land itself, a Gentile land. It certainly makes a statement that the redemption story is not only for the Jewish people. And we see this driven home in the last part of the story. So we'll get to that. So last part of the story, uh, verses 14 through 20. The, herds, uh, the herdsmen fled and told in the city and in the country. Told it in the city and the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had uh, had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So here we have the aftermath, the reaction of the people to what Jesus has just done. First, we have the herdsmen and their response, the one whose livelihood Jesus has just destroyed, by the way. (laughs) They are the first to run and to tell people what happened. The man who Jesus saved from demon possession must have been a bit of a local legend because when people come from the town and see what the herdsmen are talking about and they see him free of demons and sitting there in his right mind, they don't know what to make of it. The text tells us that rather than amazement, wonder, and awe, their response is fear. And I think their fear comes from a lack of understanding. Um, It's also likely, though, that their fear, um, that the fear that had them chaining the man and banishing him to live in the tombs stems from that same place. Rather than fall down at Jesus' feet for what he did for this man and for ridding the area of these demons, they ask him to get out. Why? Well, as I mentioned, 2,000 pigs were also lost in what Jesus did. That's a lot of bacon. That was my bad joke. Apologies if it was in poor taste. I do take the loss of animal life seriously. Um, But the point is, they don't know Jesus. They aren't Jewish, so they also don't recognize Jesus as God. They clearly do not think that this one man's life is worth the destruction of their property, which is really what it comes down to. The value of the pigs is in their monetary value. So the people beg Jesus to leave, fearing what else he might destroy or change for them. But then, as Jesus is doing what they want and preparing to leave, the man whom all of this has been for comes forward. And this is where I find myself in our story today. So, this scripture is actually one that's kind of hard for me to talk about, and I honestly don't know what I was thinking when I volunteered to preach on it. (laughs) Certainly this week was regretting that, but I think God knew. Because it brings me back to a part of my own story that I don't like to talk about or acknowledge. But that I'm feeling very strong urging of the Spirit to share with you all today. So when I was 15, which, as the great philosopher Taylor Swift reminds me, is a very vulnerable time in life, I was at a point of crisis. I, I now know that this was the beginnings of um, a really, when I really recognized the beginnings of a lifelong struggle with anxiety. But at the time, it came out in the form of really dark, intrusive thoughts that I had no control over and that just seemed to attack me constantly. I felt really alone in my attempt to fight them and it left me in a low and desperate place. I just wanted those dark and dangerous thoughts to get out of me, all those feelings. And so I tried to get them out by cutting myself. This went on for months of that year until 
one night, I felt like I hit the bottom in, of a pit in my soul is the best way I can describe it. And um, I felt like I was just sitting in darkness. And I just remember reaching out my hand to God and begging God to help me because I just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have the resources, right? I grew up going to church. I was a believer, but I had never really prayed like that before from this place of desperation. And I'll never forget how things shifted that night when I felt the presence of God come and step into that darkness with me. And with that presence, the stirrings of hope seemed to shine a little light, just enough to see by. So today we're closing out our series, Reimagining New Beginnings. And the overall message of that has been that Jesus comes to offer a new beginning for us, one that is powerful and lasts through all the tides and phases of life. So I thought this was appropriate to share because as a teenager, (laughs) that night of darkness was when God first became real to me. But my struggles didn't vanish instantly. I wish I could say that those dark thoughts and the desire to cut them out of myself were cast into the sea like the demons in today's story and never affected me again. But unfortunately, that is not the case. It's more like that light of, through that, with that light of hope, right? I was able to find a ladder that I could climb up out of the pit. And the ladder is kind of old and rusty, and occasionally it'll give out and I'll, I'll fall back a little bit. But the light has continued to grow and grow such that the darkness doesn't feel as dark. And every time I get back on that ladder is a time that I have chosen the hope and the love and the promise of new life that Jesus offers again, a new beginning. I also definitely want to mention that therapy, medication, and community were also an important part of that work. Our past don't just go away, but what would we be without our stories? Jesus tells the man in today's scripture to go back to his home, a place where he's been cast out of because of his condition, Remember, he was exiled out to the tombs and counted among the dead, and now he gets to go home and be reconnected with life. Talk about foreshadowing the resurrection, right? But the man, we are told, begs to stay with Jesus. And I wonder if after how his friends and family treated him when he was possessed, if he even wants to go back. But Jesus not only gave this man new life, but also a mission. And he, he tells him to go back home and to tell his friends what the Lord did for him. And the man does. And unlike the people who first came to see what happened with the pigs, those that the man gives his testimony to respond not with fear, but with wonder. So to top off this already amazing story of salvation, redemption, and reconciliation for this man, 
this man also becomes the first missionary in the Gentile world. So as we continue our worship today and close out with communion, I encourage you to take some time to reflect on your own story. Where was your new beginning? Maybe today you find yourself in need of one. Maybe your new beginning was years ago and you, like me, have found yourself not wanting to acknowledge it. You've forgotten how much power lies in your own story. What has the Lord done for you? Our stories matter. And like the man in today's scripture, we are called to share them. Who might God be telling you to share your story with? So as you come to the table of salvation, where God's plan of redemption through his broken body and blood was made clear, may you bring your own story as an offering to God. Come and see just what the Lord might do with it. You pray with me. God of redemption, you who are always working for our good, you who see us in our entirety and love us still, we come before you with all our failings and shortcomings and ask for your forgiveness. Forgive us for forgetting who we were created to be. Forgive us for failing to go and tell what you have done for us. In the taking of communion today, I pray that you will fill us with the desire to share that truth that you have given us. Help us to be bold and courageous in our mission and give us the strength and resolve to proclaim your truth. May our words and actions exemplify your love, mercy, and grace. And may those who hear that truth be drawn closer to you. Amen. So as you come forward take communion we'll have right over here can come around through here and back this way take a chunk of the bread which represents the body of our lord broken for us dip it into the cup which represents his blood poured out for us um, we unfortunately don't have a gluten-free option today so i apologize for that um, and if uh, today in responding to this message, you find yourself in need of prayer, Justin and I will both be up front ready to receive you. So.